folks, this is part two of our episode, The Myth of Marie Antoinette. So be sure to listen to part one if you haven't yet. All right, y'all, enjoy the rest of Marie's conversation with Dr. Suzanne Dasan. So she becomes incredibly unpopular, and the monarchy becomes so incredibly unpopular that a revolution happens. So, well, not exactly. I mean, no? the revolution is not initially against the king. Ah, all right. So one of the, the the French Revolution lasts for ten years, right? Lasts mm-hmm. from 1789 all the way to 1799 when Napoleon Bonaparte essentially uh, overthrows the republic. And the initial French Revolution, it its initial purpose, well. Uh, the revolution's complicated, but politically, initially, they're aiming to set up a constitutional monarchy that is to keep the king, but to develop a system more like Britain's, because Britain in this time period has a king and it has the parliament, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, who represent propertied men, elite men in, in Britain. So the French are actually initially trying to create something like that. So if I could just say quickly, the revolution happens for multiple reasons. One key factor is that the king goes broke, he becomes bankrupt, and he's bankrupt partly because of the fact that the French have spent a huge amount of money on war in in attempts to, it's definitely tied to the whole global economy and the global competition for empire, the whole system of colonization and slavery that existed in the 18th century, in which the French are major rivals of the British, and they lose to them in the Seven Years' War, and then they participate in the American Revolution on our side, partly to get back to Britain, but that's back at Britain, but that's expensive for the French. So there are economic reasons for the revolution. There's also So uh, in addition to this heavy debt, there's an an economic decline, and also there's famine right on the eve of the revolution that will be tremendously important. There's been a lot of talk about politics and agitation in the cultural movement known as the Enlightenment, and that will fuel the ideas of the French revolutionaries just as it fueled the ideas of the American revolutionaries. And then also tremendously important, there's chafing in France against the existing social structure in which you have two categories of people, the aristocracy, members of the the clerical hierarchy of the church. So that's the first estate and the second estate of the aristocracy. The third estate is everybody else. But the first two estates, the clergy and the nobility, have special privileges, and those are resented. So there are there is a system of privilege that doesn't seem to fit the changing uh, world of France on the eve of the revolution. That will be important for really for understanding some of the resentment against Marie Antoinette, although a lot of it has to do with her Austrianness. Okay, so let's see, where are we? I the revolution we, breaks out. Yeah. yeah, so revolution breaks out. What does Marie Antoinette do? How does she respond to this? Or does she respond? Well, initially, when the revolution first begins, you have the king has agreed because he's broke, he agrees to allow representatives from different parts of France to to come and discuss the political situation with him in a structure known as the Estates General. It's a traditional representative body that hasn't met since 1614. Those guys, some of them, the members of the Third Estate, the commoners break away and declare they're the National Assembly and that they're going to write a new constitution for France. That's what happens in the summer of 1789, which is cemented by the, the storming of the Bastille. I won't go into since it doesn't involve Marie Antoinette, but it's really fascinating. Anyway, Marie Antoinette, uh, so there there is this moment, moment of political possibility of changing the political structure and opening up to the idea that the king would share power with some kind of representative body. And the king and the queen are, they are not happy about this. Louis XVI kind of plays along with what is happening, but he's dragging his feet on all kinds of political reforms. Marie Antoinette, 
Antoinette is she is pushing the king to resist the revolution rather than to work with it. And one of the things that happens early in the revolution that's important for Marie Antoinette and for understanding her increasing resentment of the revolution is that in October of 1789, there's an incident known as the March to Versailles or the Women's March to Versailles. Of course, Paris and Versailles are about 12 miles apart. And in early October, there are a group of about 7,000 women, Parisian women, working women, the market women uh, who sell food and fish, et cetera, in the, in the markets of, of Paris, and also other poor women march out to Versailles. And they march there partly because the price of bread has not gone down, even though the harvest of 1789 was good. So it's partly about bread, but it's also about pressuring the king about the new politics, because the king is reluctant, and Marie Antoinette also, they're reluctant to agree to the political innovations, which are hugely important. For one thing, the new National Assembly has written the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which declares all citizens are practically speaking, all free male citizens, so not the slaves in the colonies and not women, declare, declares them to be have access to equal rights, which of course didn't exist in the old regime. The king doesn't want to agree to this. There's also been decrees which take away some of the financial privileges of the aristocracy. King is dragging his feet. He's dragging his feet on sharing power. So this group of, of women, and, and then followed by men, and also new National Guards, new militia, all march out to Versailles in order to pressure the king to agree to these changes and to get bread. And, and they succeed. But one of the things that happens is that on the second day of this demonstration, this march out at Versailles, one of the royal bodyguards, people milling around in the inner courtyards of Versailles, one of the royal bodyguards fires a shot into the crowd and and uh, uh, someone is killed. The bodyguards tell the story differently. But anyway, the crowd then rushes into the palace and they rush towards the royal apartments, including towards the apartments of the queen. And while this happens, you know, <laughs> Louis the Sixteenth, Louis rather, Louis the Sixteenth goes in a, a, a downstairs passageway towards the queen's bedroom. Meanwhile, the people who are guarding her apartments let her know and she rushes to his quarters. But the crowd comes basically to the outer chamber of her of her bedroom. They're stopped. The guards then run away. They do not proceed. There's a myth. One of the many myths is that they ran into her bedroom and stabbed her bed multiple times with Pope pikes and swords, but Edmund Burke and others um, perpetrated that story. The crowd actually, I think they they don't they don't quite want to murder the queen, but they certainly terrify her because she runs, you know, six o'clock in the morning. She's racing, you know, barely clothed from her bedroom towards the king's apartment so that she'll be surrounded by other courtiers. And then um, that day, the king and queen are made to appear on the balcony there in Versailles to, to kind of placate the crowd who have invaded their palace. And the National Guard from Paris managed to rescue the situation and calm, calm people down. But the king and queen can really only succeed in fully calming the crowd by actually agreeing to move to Paris. And this happens in October of 1789. So it's a hugely important incident in which the queen and the king, but especially the queen, are completely terrified and then become, I would say, ever more turned against the revolution. They're moved to a palace, a palace called the Tuileries, which is next, it's, it, was burnt down later, not during the French Revolution, uh, during a later revolution in France, but then they're living in Paris. So they're not captives of uh, the Parisians, but they're certainly much more subject to the pressure from the streets of Paris, from the people of Paris. They're near the National Assembly. Anyway, it's a, it's a huge shift for the queen. So she's not happy. Yes. Yeah, so one of these myths that surround Marie Antoinette is mm -hmm. during this bread riot in particular is that she gets told, you know, the people are starving, they don't have bread. Mm -hmm. And she replies, well, then let them eat cake. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where does that come from? <laughs> yeah, she, uh, it's, you know, there, there's some uncertainty surrounding that question. It, it's, it's not, it, she, she did not 
say this, at least as far as we know, she never said that. And in fact, it seems as if that line is attributed to her much later after the revolution, you know, during the revolution, she is, especially when things turn more against the monarchy, which we can talk about in a moment, she's insulted uh, in various ways. Um, but because she's, and but none of those insults include that she had said, let them eat cake. So it's not something the French revolutionaries say. It actually comes from later in the mid 19th century. And it refers, we think back to a line in Rousseau, uh, the Enlightenment thinker in his confessions, he wrote that princess, this is before the revolution, said when the peasants were hungry, oh, let them eat brioche is actually the French. Um, but it becomes associated with Marie Antoinette precisely because she is so alive, she's thought of, and she was, <laughs> the spendthrift who's spending the nation's money at a moment when when France is uh, so, so much in debt. And she's targeted for that because she's female and women are associated with consumption and with fashion. She's targeted for that in a way that her husband, Louis the 16th never is so that that line is used against her yeah interesting what did she do during the revolution now that she's in paris mm -hmm. what does she do does she yeah, try well, to get involved with politics more or does she just kind of try to stay quiet at one point the royal family tries to flee yeah right yeah yeah, I mean, Marie Antoinette, all during the revolution, even during this period of the constitutional monarchy, which is really the first three years, it's th it's three years before the French turn against their king, right, and one of the and queen. And one of the reasons they do that is because the king and queen try to run away. But I should mention that during this era of the constitutional monarchy, when uh, the National Assembly is trying to restructure the politics of France, Marie Antoinette is always opposed to that. And she's also always writing to her brother, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and the and the ruler of Austria, at this point, it's Leopold II, would he interfere in the politics of France and sort of slow down the revolution, protect the king and queen, maybe even invade France? You know, when I teach my undergrad class on the French Revolution, we, we read a letter from 1791, so before France and Austria actually end up going to war, in which she's really begging um, her brother not really to invade, but to pressure France, and then later on to invade. So I should say, I should tell you the story of the, the, the king and queen's flight, which is that in June of 1791, once Louis is increasingly seeing how the revolution is radicalizing and he's more and more uncomfortable with the nature of sharing power. And it would be fun to talk about the revolutionary changes, but, but we won't. But anyway, he and Marie Antoinette decide to run away, to flee Versailles. And it is their belief that if they go out into the countryside, they wrongly believe that support for the revolution is concentrated only in Paris and that people will rise up and support them or that they will be able to get all the way to the Austrian Netherlands, what's now Belgium in this time period was part of the Austrian Empire. So one night they disguised themselves as middle-class people, the king as a kind of merchant figure and the queen in middle-class dress and also their children. The disguises are, the whole thing is orchestrated actually with, in cahoots with Axel von Fersen, that Swedish aristocratic officer that I was mentioning who, who calls Marie Antoinette and his, has his angel in his, in his letters to her. Anyway, so they have this whole system where they have a, a, a giant carriage and at midnight they have this carriage that it's, it's fantastic. It has um, all these fancy seats, a picnic basket, a wine rack, a leather covered chamber pot. And it sneaks, if you can imagine it, it sneaks out of the palace with the king and queen and family in disguise and heads for the northeastern frontier. What ends up happening is that the king and queen are stopped. Their, their carriage, well, they're recognized. They're recognized by a, a stable master who it is thought recognizes Louis XVI in part by um, his face on the new paper money, the way his face would look. He has a very distinctive uh, face. 
And they are at an inn in a town known as Varennes, and they're stopped there. Meanwhile, the National Assembly, who realizes the king and queen have run away, don't quite know, know what to do because they don't want to admit that the king is not willing to um, align himself with the revolution. So they say the king has been kidnapped, and they issue a decree that whoever finds him should bring him back. So in fact, this stable master and these other national guards and pro-revolutionary figures in the town of Varennes, when the king and queen are at this inn, they show them this decree. They essentially arrest them. They don't let them proceed. And um, when the decree asking from the National Assembly that the king and queen be brought back is shown to them, allegedly the queen grabs it and crumples it up and throws it to the ground and cries, what insolence. And the king is supposed to have murmured, there is no longer a king in France. Anyway, they're then brought back to Paris in, in you know, with thousands of people, uh, certainly National Guards, militiamen, but also thousands of people thronging around them. They're brought back to Paris and allegedly there are signs up that say, you know, whoever cheers the king will be flogged. Whoever insults him will be hung. In other words, you can't cheer for the king. You can't insult the king. At this moment, you begin to get the king has been quite popular, Marie Antoinette, obviously a little less so. But at this moment, you begin to get more talk of should we have a democratic republic in France? They've already been experimenting, obviously, with all kinds of forms of the vote at the local level and for the National Assembly and all of that. But the king and the queen are then they're really insulted. The queen is portrayed as this is when you get these portrayals of her as a tigress, as a kind of harpy figure, half snake, half, half, half um, winged bird. And the insult of the king and queen, pornography against Marie Antoinette really step up at this time period. And, you know, that's destructive, but it is accompanied by a more positive discourse about the notion that France should become a republic. Do they really need a king and queen? And the king and king is overthrown, actually, the, the following summer. So how is Marie Antoinette involved with mm -hmm. these revolutionary politics at this point where, I mean, basically, it, it looks bad for the monarchy? It looks yeah. really bad. Well, one thing that happens is that there is a kind of saber rattling taking place between France and Austria and Prussia and also other European countries. And in the spring of 1792, France goes to war against Austria and then Prussia. And actually the king and queen, the war is supported by one major faction of revolutionaries, but it's also bizarrely supported by the king and queen. And the queen in particular wants to go to wants them to go to war so that they can lose. She hopes that her brother, at this point, her brother brother Francis, by the time they go to war, it's her brother Francis II, who's ruling Austria. She hopes that they will rescue the king and queen of, in effect, reestablish the old regime, absolutist system of monarchy and get rid of, of the revolution. And it's so the queen becomes very much accused and, and justifiably so of being engaged in something called the Austrian committee, which is a kind of secret, secret cabal of courtiers who are really plotting against France <laughs> and hoping to lose the war. Because France is initially losing the war and it's under a, a lot of pressure and because, but especially because of the increasing level of agitation for a republic and suspicion of the king and suspicion of some of the people who have been working closely with him, the king is overthrown in August of 1792. And he and Marie Antoinette are actually at this point taken from the palace and put in prison. The king will be put on trial and executed. And the queen is held, it's another 10 months before she's put on trial, but she is uh, held incommunicado at that, at that point because she is this counter-revolutionary figure 
within this fragile new democratic republic that's trying to invent itself in the cauldron of war against uh, pretty soon, not just Austria and Prussia, but also Great Britain, the Dutch Republic, Spain, you know, multiple European powers. Yeah. So what is Marie Antoinette put on trial for? What is she charged with? Yeah, she is, she's, uh, she's initially charged with different things. One, she's charged for being a, somebody who has been profligate with the money of France. That's not surprising since that's an old, old image of her, somebody who has spent money and caused France to go into debt. She's especially charged with being a counter-revolutionary for her plotting with the Austrians. And, you know, during the King's trial, various letters after palace was invaded, various letters were discovered uh, that showed the extent to which that was already true. But the trial is really a show trial. So some of the things she's accused of are completely outrageous. There's one revolutionary journalist who foments the story that she had literally committed incest with her with her son, the little Louis who would be counted as Louis the 17th, and that she taught him to masturbate. So she's ac- essentially accused of being this you know, a sexual seductress with a particularly ugly bent. And at the point in the trial when she's accused of that, you know, she she stands up and I guess she's already standing and appeals to the mothers in the audience, you know, this is impossible to accuse. This is not possible for a mother. And she, of course, refuses to answer that charge um, because it's so outrageous. And there's one historian who's written about that in a very interesting fashion, which is to say, you know, Louis XVI is accused of various crimes of plotting against the state and of tyrannical abuse of power. Marie Antoinette is also accused of crimes that are much more intimate and that are much more fabricated, this, this sort of sexual crimes. And this historian has theorized that in some ways Marie Antoinette represented what the historian calls a bad mother. That is a woman who becomes involved in public politics in ways that are inappropriate for women to engage in. Um, so it's impossible to see Marie Antoinette as like other women of France because she's not, but in the, because, you know, she's in such an exceptional position, she's a queen. But in this instance, she's accused in ways that are sexualized that are sometimes also levied against other politically active women. So that part of the story is, is, is I think, quite interesting because, you know, why do these revolutionaries care about this little guy who is, after all, Louis the, Louis the her son, Louis the, would be Louis the 17th. So after all, the, the heir of the king. They shouldn't care what happens to him if they're really anti-monarchical. But in fact, evidently, they want to accuse Marie Antoinette in this in this awful way. So would you say Marie Antoinette was very involved with the revolution or was she more of a scapegoat blamed for things that the revolutionaries saw as bad and therefore try to funnel all their energy into that? She's guillotined. And I would never argue that she deserved that fate on any level. She is a scapegoat in the sense that, you know, the king and the queen especially represent the old regime and the power system that's being overthrown. She was guilty of counter-revolution and of conniving with the Austrians. Doesn't mean she should have been killed. I certainly would not. I I would certainly not say that. In other words, I guess you have to draw some kind of line between Mm -hmm. recognizing that she is trying to operate against this new democratic republic that's trying to invent itself and she is operating against France, but she certainly is a scapegoat and other being executed was uh, outrageous treatment of her, right? She could have been sent back to Austria or thrown into, kept in, in, in prison or whatever. Even that is, I think, harsh. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Marie Antoinette is, is beheaded mm-hmm. kind of as this symbol of, I mean, there is no, literally no more monarchy as 
as they have been guillotined. The children, I think, what do what do happen to their children? Well, they have two children at this point who are with them in the in prison. Uh, one of them, her her little son Louis, actually ends up dying from you know he's just sick and he's not treated as well as he should be. It's not really that he's abused, but he's not well cared for. Their daughter uh, survives and she leaves behind a memoir that's interesting to read. And then you know after Napoleon, his his brother, who at that point is Louis the becomes king of France in 1814 and then again in 1815 when Napoleon is overthrown. So the brothers have fled France and they're they're living as emigres outside of France. Um, but they they will survive the revolution and return. Why do you think Marie Antoinette is such a popular figure? There have been movies about her, numerous books about her. She's a very mm-hmm. popular figure, a very almost mythical figure. Why do you think she still captures the public imagination to this day? Yeah. Well, one thing is she's not, the French are not fascinated with her. (laughs) It's the British and the Americans who are interested in her. And of course, the British lionized her at the time as this victim of the anti-monarchical moves of the revolutionaries who were, of course, their enemies by the time you get to that part of the revolution to 1793. Um, I think that Marie Antoinette, I think a couple of things. One thing is that I think she represents tragic possibilities of the strange twists of uh, of fate of humanity. I mean, on the one hand, you know, she's a pretty ordinary person who happened to be born into this Austrian family, uh, Austrian monarchical family that turns her into the Queen of France. And, you know, then she's she's a feisty individual who doesn't know how to read the situation and makes mistakes, but nonetheless, she's pretty human. And yet she becomes, as you say, you know, this, this figure who comes to represent the tyranny of the old regime and suffers this tragic fate. So I think on the one hand, there's sort of a fascination with somebody who was an ordinary person who who suffered an unpredictable fate. And whatever her responsibility was, it wasn't as great, uh, so great that she deserved to be executed. The other thing is that um, I think she has been used at different moments in history to represent different things. For example, there is a movie that I surely should mention in 2006 by Sofia Coppola called Marie Antoinette that is, um, you know, as a French historian, I have to say there are a lot of objectionable parts to the movie, especially the way they show the early revolution, for sure. You know, the crowd is just screaming rabble or whatever. But it's fantastically fun to watch because of the costumes. Um, And it has this 1980s pop tune soundtrack that's quite fun. And it captures something of the the spirit of uh, Marie Antoinette's um, rebellious streak out at Versailles. And it has absolutely fabulous costumes. So it's really worth watching. And I mention this because one one who's one, I think it was a lit crick person who started theorizing what does Marie Antoinette see? Why did she become popular in the early 2000s? And it's partly because with this sort of wave and third wave feminism of uh, of, of young women at that time claiming, oh, you know, we, we want to be feminist in a way that's very feminine. And they embrace the kind of consumption you know, with America's wealth and American capitalism producing all this wealth, they embrace this image of this figure who represents a kind of flamboyant feminine consumption. Now, whether you like that image or not, and it's, it's not my favorite image of uh, the way women should be, whether you like the image or not, the movie is definitely worth watching. And Marie Antoinette becomes a, a vehicle for expressing that celebration of independence and uh, kind of flamboyant consumption. So that's kind of interesting. And ironically, you know, back in the 30s, a movie was made with 
which celebrated her as a kind of domestic motherly figure, which is not at all the image that she has in Sofia Coppola's movie. So Marie Antoinette can be modeled in different ways, given the different political and cultural moments. So she's whatever she is, she's a, she's an intriguing figure. And, and one of the sad things is that we'll, we'll never really know totally who she was, right? Because so many myths have built up uh, surrounding her, but she's, she's definitely worth thinking about. So thank you so much for inviting me to talk about her. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think that is the perfect note to end on as we investigate who was Marie Antoinette and, and just about her incredibly fascinating life. Thank you so much for talking and sharing so much of your knowledge today. I found that incredibly fascinating. <laughs> thank you. It's my, my pleasure.